let you know about nursery. We do have nursery available, and lab kids are heading out. So down to the uh, to the pre-prepared room for them. So very good. So excellent. Uh oh. Hey, good catch, Eric. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I know. It's we yeah we have issues with the candles. So. Um, Excellent, excellent. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 34, as uh, we are um, going to continue in a series that uh, we only have uh, one more sermon um, next Sunday um, in this series, and we've been trying to, probably helps put the glasses on, Um, we've been trying to go through a a discussion on habits, uh, godly habits, uh, spiritual disciplines, as we seek to honor God through these, um, the good godly habits that we put up uh, to make our lives um, a little more meaningful, I think, in some cases, and more uh, focused on God. Um, so if I made the statement to you this morning that good habits make us holy, we would, we would all agree with that, right? Uh, no, of course not, because habits don't make us holy. Um, That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about earning a place in heaven. We're not talking about making God love us more. I mean, you can't get more loving than what we already have with Jesus. He went to the cross. He he, he died for us. Um, He was willing to take on the sins of humanity that we might take on his righteousness. So you can't get much more love than that from God. Um, All of creation was created um, for his glory, but also as a gift to us. Um, the Garden of Eden, the original inhabitants of mankind, as, as Adam and Eve were gifted this beautiful place to live and attend and to be able to spend every, every second dwelling on the goodness of God. This was all gifts for them to help to see how we can honor God through our images, through our actions. And so we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about making us any more spiritual or holy. All we're really talking about is putting ourselves in a place where we can sort of be in the way of God's transforming power. When we talk about, you know, why is a series like this important in the life of a church? Why is it important to us here at First Baptist Kenai? You know, I think, as I mentioned before, I think it's because the focus on spiritual disciplines, for some people, it may be the first time, if you really look at this and start to really play out some of these things in your life, and you begin to enact some of these spiritual disciplines, the kind of disciplines that have been going on since the founding of of the Christian church in the first century, and even before that in the lives of the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness and then as they made their way to the Holy Land, obviously these things are important. But as you focus on this, some of you may be doing this for your very first time in your entire life. And I promise you this, if you begin to enact some of these disciplines in your life, some, maybe even all, then you will put yourself in a place to truly experience a radical change in your walk with Christ, a radical change with you as you view God in your life, with you as you move through this community and beyond. This is all about, as I mentioned before, putting yourself in the place, in place of God's transforming power so you can be able to be truly radically changed. Now, we've already talked about uh, several things in this series. We've talked about worship, and worship tends to uh, focus our spirit, right? It allows us to put our minds off of ourselves onto God as we lift up holy hands and voices and thoughts and ideas and prayers as we begin to focus on what He's given us. It focuses our spirit. We've talked about rest, 
Rest prepares our body for the worship of the Lord, for the, the, the walk with God. We've talked about fasting, the idea that fasting will cleanse our body and our soul and, and allow us to really be able to draw closer to God some, uh, during that time. Well, last week, we talked about meditation. We see that meditation sharpens the thoughts in the mind. This morning, we're going to turn our, our, our attention to um, another spiritual discipline that all of us want to do, but I don't know if any of us do effectively, and that is prayer. You see, prayer aims the heart. And that's what we're talking about today, is aiming the heart. We're focusing, we're preparing, we're cleansing, we're sharpening, we're now aiming. We're aiming our heart to glorify God, to be able to serve Him. And when we start talking about that, the best you know, examples in Scripture are, you guys have already know really well. In fact, you're probably looking at Psalm 34, and, and if, you're a, if you're an underliner like I am, and you like to take notes in your Bible like I do, then you probably have notes from previous sermons, not just me. I'm sure that many other preachers have preached on this particular passage, one of our favorites, because right smack dab in the middle of the psalm, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's a, great, um, that's a great analogy that pastors and preachers love to be able to bring out. And we're going to get to that because that's part of it. It's a beautiful psalm. As I was preparing for this, you know, I, you, you come across all kinds of quotes and ideas and thoughts, and occasionally I, um, I come across a quote and I read it, and I think to myself, why did that particular individual say that thing about that topic? And for whatever reason, I was reading across um, um, uh, some of the great speeches that have been given over the years, and I found a particular individual who won a Nobel Prize in 1950, I think it was. His name was Bertrand Russell. And I know some of you are out there like, oh, yeah, we know who he is, right? He is the, like the foremost leading atheist the world's ever known. And I'm like, why in the world would we be talking about him? It's because, honestly, it doesn't matter whether you're an atheist or a sold-out child of God. You know, you can't get away from the power of God. You can't get away from seeing His glory. And even when you try your hardest to call yourself an atheist, the things just bubble out of our soul because we are created in the image of God. We are created to be, to, to share and to be and to exist in ways that, that you can't escape from. So you have a conversation with anybody, atheist or not, for a, a long enough period of time, God's going to work his way in the conversation. And so this guy gave a speech, and I'm sure he was trying to give a speech on the glory of mankind and how we don't need God and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the reality is that he can't escape it. And he said something that I thought was pretty interesting. He said that, that um, all of human activity is motivated by desire. I'm like, okay, I can agree with that. He went, he went on to say that, that, um, that man is, is different than every other animal on the planet because he has some desires that are infinite in nature and that makes mankind restless. I'm like, wow, it's pretty profound. And he goes on to talk about boa constrictors and bears and how even animals will eat a beautiful and amazing meal and then they'll just lay down and go to sleep and they won't even think about the next meal. And when they, when they get hungry, they'll wake up again and go and, and eat another meal. But mankind is not like that because our desires are infinite because we are made in the image of God. Now, he wouldn't agree to this, but I can see where he was going, that mankind was created with an infinite appetite to honor, to love, to serve, to want to be around God. Now, when you're thinking about that quote, and obviously, you know, he, the, the atheistic style that he is, he didn't realize what he was saying. But I can see that God will use the sinner or the saint to glorify himself. It doesn't matter. Even a rusty fish hook can be used to catch fish. And so, 
you got to be thinking about that. I was thinking of you, Dan. <laughs> so it's not that we use rusty fish hooks on Dan's boat. We don't. We use only the best. But God can use it no matter what. So, <laughs> so we turn into uh, chapter 34, and we can see this. Now, this is a psalm that was written by David, um, sort of memorializing, commemorating the moment where he acted insane to get out of some problems that he had with a foreign king. And um, this was, it was interesting because he wrote this psalm, and I think when he first probably started to put pen to paper, he was thinking to himself, um, potentially, how he had uh, done some amazing bit of acting to get out of uh, the trouble that was in this king with Abimelech. But um, I guess as he began to put pen to paper in earnest, he realized that um, even through the craziness that he was acting like, it was God that gave the deliverance. And so this particular psalm, although we're going to read it in English, if you happen to read ancient Hebrew, and I know there's like four or five of you out there that do really well, probably better than me, um, you would notice that this particular psalm was written as an acrostic. Um, it uses all the letters of the, um, of the Hebrew alphabet, and each letter um, of the alphabet is the beginning part of, a, of the next verse as it goes down. So we don't have that in English. There's no way we can actually do that because many of the letters in Hebrew don't have an English letter equivalence. Um, they have 22 letters, we have 27, 26. So anyway, that being said, I don't count well either. So, And I'm not, a, not an English teacher. So moving on. Um, as we read through this, I want you to just let the words of the psalmist, David himself, sort of just wash over your soul as we read this. Um, starting in the first verse, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from my, all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man? Who is the man who desires life and loves the length of his days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and slaves, or and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. And the evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So an amazing psalm. 
It really is. It's a powerful, powerful psalm. And, you know, it's, it's easy to pull out verse here and verse there. And you, you can do, a lot, do that often in Scripture to be able to div, uh, put forth any idea or agenda or, or any theology. But, you know, I find that when you're reading specifically psalms, you really need to take the whole chapter into account. Because there's, there's always things that the, that the author was trying to bring out through the length of the poem, through the length of the song. All of these, um, these poems are, are, are prayers, they're songs, they're meant to be said out loud, they're meant to be sung. They're meant to be moments where we recite over and over again when we're, in, when we're weak, when we're struggling. And this is no different. We're talking about prayer. I've named this uh, title of this sermon, The Power of uh, Persistent and Peaceful Prayer. I like alliteration like most preachers. So uh, throwing the P's in there in, on, a, on, a, on multiple levels, it really, it, it soothes my soul. So I hope, it, hope you feel a little more comforted like I do just at the title. I know Dan does. There you go, brother. So very good. <laughs> so um, now you notice that this is broken up in actually five different sections, and we're going to get into that. Um, and if you look at it, there's, there's a pattern here. Now, I know that you, there's all kinds of other discussions you can have about prayer. There's various other verses and chapters in the Bible. You know, the most famous is the Lord's Prayer that Jesus gives us, that model prayer, how we're supposed to pray. But, you know, even he wasn't giving us something new. He was giving us a, a theme that runs through all of the prayers, from the Old Testament all the way through to the life of Jesus and beyond. And prayers are a powerful thing. And I think that prayer is something we should discuss and do. You know, as a pastor, this is not the first time I've preached a sermon on prayer. It won't be the last. And, you know, we can always take different texts. I can always look at this and, and try to make you feel guilty about not praying enough, you know? Like we don't have enough guilt in our life. We need a little bit more when we come to church. Wait a minute. Yeah, maybe we should. Guilt's not a bad deal. It's a good motivator, but it's not the direction I'm going to go this week. I'm not going to try to make you feel guilty about not praying. We all know that, that prayer is something that we need to do more. We all know that none of us pray as much as we need to or should. And all of us can find growth in prayer. Whether we pray 15 seconds, 15 minutes, or 15 hours a week, it doesn't matter. We can all pray more. And that's where I think I want to look at is, is coming from the other side and, and what prayer really does and how it activates the power of God in our life and allows us to be able to be a part of His hand moving in the community, the lives of friends and family around us. So we see there's five different sections we're going to be going over as, as, as swiftly as we can as we move through our time allotted to us. And the first one is, is adoration. You see that in verses 1 through 3. We'll see the concept of seeking. We see that in verses uh, 4 through 7. We'll have a discussion about enjoying, enjoyment, enjoying our time with God. We see that in, in verses 8 through 14. We'll also have a time where we'll be dealing with showing as, we, as the psalmist is trying to show us the excellence and the power of God moving through a prayerful individual's life. And you find that in verses uh, 15 through 18. And the final part of this psalm, verses 19 through 22, you're going to see a, an excellent state of being, right? And that's sort of what we've been talking about throughout a lot of these um, services. Instead of, instead of having church or doing church, we're talking about being church, right? And so it's interesting that the psalmist even thousands of years ago, would be able to write this concept of what it means to be in the presence of God, to be his hands and feet in the community, and to show what that looks like. It's a powerful moment. So he starts off with the idea of adoration. And this is something that's always a challenge when dealing with prayer, because Jesus was, had discussion on prayer, right? Every time we have to talk about anything that's, in, that's biblically oriented, like disciplines and things, we oftentimes look at the words and the actions in the life of Jesus to see what it was that he did and how he encouraged us to live out a godly life. And he talked about praying in secret. 
And that was something that was important because at the time there was individuals who made huge shows of praying out in public because they wanted people to show, know how godly they were. And they made a big show of fasting in public and all the different disciplines that the, the, the first century Jews would do. And they would do this out in public so that people would see them and say, oh yeah, there goes a real spiritual guy. Now, God wasn't saying that we shouldn't have corporate prayer. He's not saying that we shouldn't pray together as a people. He's not saying that we, that we shouldn't have moments where we offer up our prayers out loud to God amongst our friends and family. Because if that was the case, then every prayer we prayed this morning out loud with you involved would have been anti-biblical. And we know that's not true. So we know that there is an element of private prayer that God loves to have, but there's also an element of public prayer. You see that in verse 3, because he starts off, I will bless the Lord at all times. I'm praising him will be all my, continually in my mouth. I will, my soul is making its boast. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. But then he gets to verse 3. He says, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. He's calling his friends and his family and the people that are hearing him say this to into a moment of corporate prayer as all of us together, united in one thought, are focusing our attention through prayer to God. This is why when tragedies happen, people come together to pray. This is why when people are struggling, we ought to come together and pray. It's like it's, it's, it's why when, when somebody we know is really in need and they come down front and they ask for prayer that we as a congregation put our hands around, we come alongside them, we pray over them and with them so they know we are united in their tr- trials, their tragedy, their struggles as we are seeking to help them move through this and we're asking God's blessing on that moment. And so you see the, the psalmist, David, is, is going in this direction. But I want to take just a step back and look at some of these words that he uses. Like he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. We get that. His praise will be in my mouth. But then he says something interesting in verse 2. He says, my soul will make its boast in the Lord. Its boast in the Lord. That word there in Hebrew is, is ti halel. Okay? It's where we get Hallelujah. It's, the, it's one of the few words that we have in the English language that comes directly from the Hebrew. There is no equivalent word in any other language. We get it right from the Hebrews. And it's the word hallelujah, glory to God. We use it all the time. And this word, because of the little, uh, little bit in front of it, it means to make hallelujah, to make praise. So when it says my soul offers up this hallelujah kind of pray, and I don't know about you guys, but you can't just say hallelujah like like monotone, right? You can't just go, oh, hallelujah. Well, you can. That's more sarcastic, right? You can't, you can't just go, oh, I can't do it. Um, not, not be serious, you know? You can't. Hallelujahs weren't meant to be whispered. They were meant to be shouted, right? They were meant to be lifted up high. So he says, my soul screams out at the top of its lungs, glory be to God. That's what his soul is doing, right? His lips are... His lips are continually praising, but his soul is screaming that God is phenomenal. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? When was the last time you guys had a prayer like that? When was the last time I had a prayer like that? That is awesome. I would love to be able to pray like that every single time. The prayer that just so overwhelms us that we are just so flooded with joy that when we say, come with me and magnify the Lord, everyone around us goes, oh yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. I want to do what he's doing, right? That's what he's doing. He's, he's drawing us in. 
In the next sec, you see, in the next section, you see where he's seeking. He, and we know this model Jesus has had, you know, the ask, seek, knock. And we know that the Lord is trying to, to draw us into him. He wants us to seek after him. He uses this word, I sought. If you underline things, I encourage you to underline this particular word in your, in your Bible. In fact, most of your study Bibles have a little, um, a little designation next to it. And you'll see there's like three or four other verses in the, in the Old Testament where this word is being used. So you can really understand what it is that the word is trying to, to convey in the English and bring about the same level of understanding that the original psalmist in Hebrew had. And so occasionally you'll see this throughout good study Bibles, is some key words are brought out. This particular word is a great word. It really is. It's, the word is drasty. And I know that some of you that are biblical scholars, you really like to have these names. Others are like, yeah, I can do without it. But it's a beautiful word. It really is. And this is why it's important sometimes to take a moment to look at these words, right? It's if you don't have a good concordance at home, if you don't have a good study tool at home, I encourage you to buy one. They're a little pricey at times, and they're awful thick, but they are the most important thing you can add to your Bible study. It's not as important as God's Word, but it does bring out more clarity when you're studying this. And this particular word, it just, I mean, it says, I sought the Lord. And you can make that, oh, okay, I sought the Lord, yay. Oh, that was nice. But that's not what this is. There's a, there's a depth to this word that the psalmist is trying to do. And he's, the word actually means to seek with great care, right? And I'm trying to think in times in my life where I have sought with great care. And the only time I can really think about this is when I'm out in the woods with a gun in my hand trying to be a hunter. Because I'm not a very good hunter, and you know, you have to really kill things to be a hunter. So in that case, I'm really just a guy who walks in the woods with guns. And I'm not really, I haven't really killed a whole lot. But I'm trying, right? And so I remember in northern New York, we used to go turkey hunting every year during turkey season. It's amazing. Those turkeys are the smartest animals I've ever met in my life. They're much smarter than me. I know it's not, the bar is kind of low, but still, they're, they're brilliant when it comes to hiding from hunters, right? Or at least from me. And I'd get out there and I have all the tools. You know, I got the little, the scrapers that makes the turkey noise. And, and I practiced my turkey call with the funny little horn. And I've done all that stuff. And I've never been able to find a turkey. And I sit out there and I wait for these things. But I'm hunting diligently, right? I'm looking for every single sign, every single nuance. I'm looking for uh, the, the crack. I'm listening for the, the, the crack of a twig, the brush of, a, of, of feathers on the, on the lower branches of a tree. I'm looking for the sign that they've walked past. I actually would go out weeks before. And I'd clear out certain areas where I know the turkey, where I think the turkeys like to go, right? And I'd clear all the, 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 the leaves away so it's just the bare dirt so I can at least see their little feet prints and I know they're close, right? And so I'm looking for these things. I'm hunting them with a diligence that I probably don't hunt with anything else in my life. But that's the word, right? That's what he's saying. Because I'm hunting diligently. I'm seeking with all of my heart and soul the Lord. And the Bible says, draw close to me and I'll draw close to you, right? Seek me and you will find me. He's not a turkey hiding. He's the God of the universe and he's not hiding well. He really isn't. He's terrible at hide and seek because he wants to be found. He wants you to find him. He says, if when I sought him, I found him. He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. They, looked at, they that looked at him were radiant. This, this psalmist, uh, David is so, I mean, it's amazing to me. I don't know what school he went to for theology, but it was probably like Liberty, you know, because it was like a really good school, you know, just throwing it out there. Anyway, David, <laughs> David is just a, an amazing, amazing theologian. He really is. And it's the testament to Samuel, the prophet, right? 
Samuel anointed him to be the next king. And you know Samuel didn't just throw some oil on his head and say, okay, good luck with that, right? You know Samuel didn't want to see the mistakes happen with David that happened with Saul. And so either it was Samuel or it was David's father or his brothers or significant people in his life, but somebody somewhere fed deep, rich theology into David. And he is he's coming out in his poetry. Now, we know that the Holy Spirit was, was moving through him, but we also know the Holy Spirit didn't dictate the words to him. He wrote from the depth of his soul because his soul was so close to where God wanted it. The Bible says he was a friend. He was a man after God's own heart. Not many people, no one other than David has that designation. And so when he's writing these things and he says, they looked at him and were radiant, he is recalling the time when Moses went up on the hill and he met with God face, sort of face to backside. And he came back down, he was glowing so much that people said, put something over your face, we can't handle it. But look what it says here. He says, they, he goes, and their faces, or they, look, they that looked at him were radiant. And it's not, a, it's not a singular, he's not just saying that, most, he's talking about all of us, right? Anyone that comes into the presence of God, it changes them to a point where people recognize that. And their faces shall never be ashamed. That, uh, that idea there is, he's not gonna let us cover that with a veil. Most Moses did it for the people there because they were weird. They weren't really following where God wanted them to. They couldn't handle the glory of God. But we're not like that. And that's what he's trying to say here is that those of us that are true followers, that are true walking in the presence, that are seeking God diligently, we're going to encounter him. We're going to see him face to face. And our lives are going to be changed in a way that people around us will see. And you don't hide it. You know, I know in this day and age, you can't even put a Jesus fish on your cubicle at work without somebody being offended by what you have to say. But you know, I don't know about you, is I, I just, of course, in my job, nobody gets offended when I put a Jesus fish on my cubicle. So maybe I'm just a little, you know, I'm in a different bubble than some of you guys. But you know, I tell you, if, if, the, God, if the job you have is a gift from God, and if your salvation is truly a gift from God, and it's such a gift that you want to be able to share this with people that you know. Do what you have to. And if it's putting a Jesus fish in your cubicle, do it. If it's talking about Jesus in the break room, do it. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. God will protect you. He'll keep you safe. And maybe if that job isn't going to be there because you were a little too Christian for them, I know God's going to open up another door. Because jobs are a dime a dozen. There's only one Jesus. Amen. There's only one life, right? right? There's only one opportunity we have to share our love that we have that overwhelms our soul with those that need to have it. And look what he says here. And this is, I tell you, I, oh man, I get to verse six and I just get a little, I get a little glory bumpy, you know, I just, it starts moving. I've really enjoyed camping out in the book of Psalms the last few weeks. Um, this has really meant a lot to me. I hope that it means a lot to you guys as well. When he gets to verse six, it says, this poor man cried. And we read that in the English, like, oh, yeah, the poor man. Okay, gotcha. But that word really doesn't mean just poor, right? The word means something even deeper than that. It means afflicted, traumatized, broken, damaged, wounded. And when I read this, there was a moment here where I stopped reading David's words. And I started speaking my heart, right? And I remember when I was reading this this week, there was just a point there where this is no longer David's car cry, this is mine. And I started saying, this afflicted man here cried. 
This man right here who's broken, who needs you beyond all recognition of need, cried out to you. And the Lord heard him. The Lord heard me and saved me from my troubles. Now this is a powerful moment here in this. It's obvious that the psalmist was seeking. It's obvious that all of us need to seek more. Verse 7 is just amazing. The angel of the Lord encamps around us. And you have that moment of, of protection and guidance that, that all of us seek to know. And this is the point we need to remember is that when we are delivered, we're truly delivered. We're not delivered by anything we've done. We're delivered only by the power of God. And that's what the psalmist is saying. That's what David wants us to know. And then he jumps into the, the, the probably the, the most, the richest part of this psalm, which is right in the middle. It has the, the bulk of the, the stanzas. And, and um, he's talking about the enjoyment uh, the Westminster Catechism, for those of you that are into catechisms, because I know a lot of you really just study that like there's no tomorrow. And actually, to be honest with you, if you have young kids, there's no better way to teach a kid um, true understanding of God because the, the catechism was made and originally designed to teach children who God was. And the very first question is, what is the chief aim of mankind? What is the chief aim of man? And, the, and they ask the question and they give you the answer. And it's real easy. Answer, a question, answer, question, answer. So the first question is, what is the chief aim or goal of mankind? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Can't, get, can't go wrong with that. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what we're here to do. And so you see this, the psalmist is, is drawing. I mean, obviously, they, the Westminster people got it from somewhere. They got it from Scripture. And so when you see this, taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, this idea of enjoying something is pretty powerful, right? Matthew Henry, the great commentator from ages and ages ago, wrote this about this passage. He said, let God's goodness be rolled around under your tongue as a sweet morsel. That's an interesting take on that, if you think about it. You know, we've all had good flavors and good tastes in our life. And when we have those moments there where, where that enjoyment, that, that everything is just right there, it seems to be around good food. In fact, the most amazing thing about this, if you think about it, that oftentimes humankind, we associate pleasure and satisfaction more often with a good meal than anything else. So when the psalmist is telling us to taste and see, he wants us to associate ourselves with that. John Piper, one of the premier theologians of the, of the 21st century right now, I like to listen to him preach, most of us do. I'm at times past, uh, I know I've, I've sat and spent hours sometimes going through some of his sermons because they're just so amazing and rich. And um, he wrote a book about Christian hedonism. Like those two things can go together, but he calls himself a, a Christian hedonist. He's somebody that likes to gorge himself on the pleasure of God and spend entire moments and times and just existence with God. He wants the, his highest glory being God's. His most amazing moments should be about giving God the greatest amount of glory possible. And so that's where he falls in this. And I can see that, that he's drawing also from the Psalms to have that idea. The idea that we should, we should enjoy God for every second and minute that we get from him. And this means the good and the bad. You know, the psalmist is not trying to say that, and I know there are, there are theologians out there, well, I call them theologians, but I use that term really loosely, where they, they like to teach the idea that, that, if, that God, since God wants the best for us, then everything that, that we want that's good for us, that we think is good for us, he wants for us, right? So that means that we should all be driving rich, wonderful cars, have big, nice houses and big bank accounts, and all we have to do is ask God, and he's going he's gonna to open up the vaults in heaven and rain down dollar bills on us. Like, that happens, right? That doesn't happen. We know that. We know that there is a richness in serving God that transcends our 
temporal moment, whether we're sick or whether we're well, whether we're poor, whether we're wealthy, whether we're hungry or whether we're full, there is a richness that is found within us. There is an infinite capacity of desire to know God that's planted inside every human being. And we seek to know him. And this is what the psalmist is saying when he talks about enjoying this. Look at verse 10. He says, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Can you remember what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled, they will be satisfied, they will have their fullness found in me. This is what the psalmist is saying as as Jesus was echoing his great, great, great grandfather, David, by saying these words. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, he says, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord because we know that there can never really be any fulfillment until we begin life with fear of God. Wisdom begins, everything begins with that basic awe and fear of who God really is, knowing that we can enjoy him in that. And there's an enjoyment in knowing where the rules are at. I don't know about you guys, but I've raised a couple kids in my family, right? And I tell you, I haven't met a kid yet that doesn't push the boundaries of all the rules, right? And, and, and some kids are brighter than others, and they find the loopholes. Phil, you were a loophole person, I'm, I'm assuming, right? I'm a loophole person, you know? And um, I, my mother would, would get really irritated me because she would take sometimes 10 minutes to tell me what I couldn't do, right? To define all the parameters of the box she wanted me to stay in. And I'd still find the loopholes, and, and that would really bother her. And she, sometimes she would get mad, and I'd just get punished. Sometimes she was like, well, you got me there. I didn't tell you you couldn't do that, right? So it just happens, and it depends upon how we parent. And, and, but I know this, that... And you see this in the lives of children. Whether you make those rules tight or loose, that's a parenting style. You guys have to make that decision on your own. But I found that there isn't a child out there, no matter how much they press against those rules, don't actually like the comfort of having them, right? Because rules mean I love you. Rules mean that I'm with you, I'm guiding you, and I don't want the really bad things to happen to you. I want you to be able to fail, but I want you to know that we're going to have this this safety cushion failing thing. So that if you follow the rules, you may struggle, you may not always succeed, but I'm going to be there to help you and I'm going to be there to allow you to enjoy my love through your trials and your losses. And this is what he's saying here. Look what he says right at the end of this little section. He says, to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. And this is the part that I, that I think I underlined that most of us struggle with. Seek peace. Pursue it. Pursue it. Pursue peace. We shouldn't pursue antagonism. We should look at what we're saying and doing with the people around us. Imagine what it would be like if everybody in here spent our time pursuing a more peaceful pathway through our lives, right? Now, that's great when you say, oh, that's not so nice, because we, we use the Sunday school church words, and it's like, oh, yeah, I can do that. I can be peaceful. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is, is that when you're out there in the regular world, right, when, when, when you don't have any trappings of Christianity, and there's no one around you to, to hold you accountable, and that person cuts you off, or that individual does something horrible to you, or, or something bad happens, and all of a sudden you realize, and, and things come out, and, and, and life happens in front of you and now you feel guilty and you have to ask forgiveness. This is what it's about, right? This is where we're at. This is the struggle that we as Christians need to deal with, is we need to deal with the idea of what it means to seek and pursue peace. The next section is pretty clear. It's about showing. 
The eyes of the Lord are told to the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. You know, nothing shows God more to a lost world than God working in our lives and us being vocal about it. You know, when we are sick and hurt and needing help and we are praying to God and we tell our friends and family that are not saved, that don't go to church, that God is with me, I'm going through this, and we are able to make it through trials and tribulations and struggles. And we see this, the psalmist is talking about this right here. The Lord is near the broken heart. He saves those that are crushed in spirit in verse 18. This is an echo from, from Psalm 51, where the psalmist talks about a broken and contrite heart is what he seeks. So we see this brokenheartedness, this struggling. You know, it's interesting, that word in verse 18 where it says the crushed in spirit, that's the same word that is used a couple times in the, New, in the Old Testament to give an idea of childbirth. Now, I've never birthed a child out of my own body, so I don't really know the pain involved. I've only been present at several of them, and I can tell you it's a very painful moment, at least for the individual that's doing it, and I, 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 it's painful. It looks painful. It sounds painful. And... To use that word to describe the destruction of our hearts and souls when we're struggled is pretty powerful. But God says he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He saves those that are broken in pieces. He saves those that are hurt, torn. And I think it's a very important moment. The final section here in verse 5 talks about being being with him. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, that's all of us, but the Lord de delivers him out of all of it. He keeps his bones, not one of them, not one of them broken. Now, again, I told you, David is a brilliant theologian. He's recalling moments of Exodus. He's calling, recalling moments from the original Passover. When the Passover lamb was to be eaten, and you, you find this, in, I think, in Exodus chapter 12, where it talks about how the bone, the, the, that the entire animal should be eaten, and only the bones were left, and they should not be broken. They should be set outside. And this was a symbol of this whole Passover moment. And so David is recalling the time when God delivered his entire people out of bondage, out of slavery. He set them free, right? And this whole idea of deliverance that he's talking about, it says, but the Lord delivers him. This is an idea of severing from the old and setting free to the new. This is what he's talking about, severing and setting free. The bones are not broken. Now, those of us that have read the end of the book, we know this is also an illusion that is brought up about Jesus and his time on the cross. But the one thing I found about Scripture is it can have dual meanings. Not only does it mean does it, is it foreshadowing the death of Jesus, but it's also talking about our times. You know, I think one of the apostles talks about we were battered and beaten, Paul does. We were bruised and pressed down, but we were not destroyed. This is who we are as we follow God. The evil shall, sh shall, shall, shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. And verse 22 is where he sums it all up. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those take refuge in him. Who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is where it comes down. He brings it right full circle all the way down to being those of us that dwell with him, those of us that, that God has saved out of our sin, depravity, and, and things that we couldn't save ourselves from. Those can take refuge in him, and they will not be condemned. 
And what that means to us this morning is this, is that if you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, and you're talking, we've, we've talked quite a bit about seeing and praying and spending time in, in God's presence and being able to exclu- just explore that moment of prayer. We look at, at adoration. We look at um, seeking Him and enjoying Him and showing Him to other people through our prayer life and being able to be in His presence in that moment where no matter what's happening outside us, there's that bit of calmness right in the middle where we and God dwell. If, if, you, if I'm saying that to you and you have no idea what that means, that you've never had that moment where, where you knew that the calm peacefulness of God dwells within you even in the chaotic world around you, then I can promise you this, we have an answer for you here. It's not my answer, it's God's answer. He'll tell you, we'll tell you what it means and how to be saved. It's a real simple process. It's not difficult. I think that's the problem that really stumbles most people is that salvation is not hard. It takes us humbling ourselves to the point we recognize we're sinners and we can't save ourselves. And as we recognize that sin, we we come before the Lord and we we ask forgiveness. And we're willing to believe that, that he died on the cross to take our sin away from us, that we might be able to have his righteousness. And through that belief and that understanding and that repentance... God does something within our soul. He breathes new life and sort of inaugurates us into the moment of oneness with God. And we get to feel that it's what it's like in the most perfect marriage that ever was, right? When Jesus says that, um, when, when the Bible talks about being one flesh, this is what the picture is. It's a picture of our walk with Christ, to be one, so united that we can't tell where his thoughts and desires begin and ours end. We just are united with him. That's what we're talking about. So if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never had that moment where you bowed your will before him, I don't want you to leave your day without getting your heart right. For the rest of us, I'm hoping that instead of making you feel guilty about not praying, I've encouraged you to look at prayer in a different way that we can be like David and we can pray all day long and that our souls will continually make boast to God, that we'll adore him, we'll seek him, we'll enjoy him, we'll show him to others and we will spend our times being God, being church to a world that doesn't even know what that means or looks like, but they desperately want it. So I encourage you this week as you think about this sermon, as you think about this It's a wonderful song. Read over it three or four more times this week. Print it out. Put it on your refrigerator. Every time you get get a glass of milk or, or a cup of tea, read it. Meditate on it. Think about it. Rest with it. Fast with it. Worship with it. Pray with it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. As we're coming to the end of our service, we know we've still got a lot of things that need to be done today. Most of us are looking at the clock and looking at our ideas and thinking, you know, where is there going to be time in the day to accomplish everything we need to accomplish? Father, we know that if we, if we lay those plans out in front of you and we make sure that you're part of our planning process, our days get a whole lot easier. Father, we ask that you'll give us the courage to come before you early and often in prayer, in worship in our rest, in our meditations, as we seek to understand and know you more. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone in here, please, Father, just put a a sense of restlessness in their soul so they can't leave here today without getting their heart right. 
For the rest of us that know and love you, Father, I ask that you ignite a passion in us to truly seek you in a prayerful way, that we might be able to engage this continually, every day, all day, that our discussions will be of the type that will change us, that will be radically transformed, just like Moses on that hill, and our faces will shine not with our glory, but with yours, and that anyone and everyone that sees us will ask us about it, and we can point them to you. Father, we thank you again for all that you've done and said. Guide us, direct us, and help us to be your servant in all we do and say. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our precious, amazing, powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brother Phil.